Wait, so it's called The Lovely Bones and they don't even find her frickin' bones? In the movie. <laughs> Hi, I'm Danny Mackerel, like the fish, and you're listening to Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare a piece of literature to its film or TV adaptation. I'm, I'm not Danny Mackerel, I'm Danny G, the film expert. And I'm Laura S., the literature expert. Amen. And today I gave it away, but we are covering The Lovely Bones. Yeah. The book and the movie of the same name. What a story. Ooh, what an emotional roller coaster. Wow. Amen, yeah. And the movie is uh, is pretty awkward, an awkward piece of art, to say the <laughs> least. It's an awkward piece of shit. <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's yeah. a bad film, but certainly isn't good. It's, it's a bunch of great ideas that are awkwardly integrated into a film. It's hard to really call us a film. It's a weird mishmash experience of ideas and themes. And... Yeah, I think experience is a good way to describe it. This is actually the first movie I think that Danny and I have watched separately, just because we didn't have time to watch it together through the week. And my summary through text was this movie makes some really good decisions and some really bad, if not poor <laughs> Oh, yeah. but Movie-ruining experience decisions. Right. It's it's a weird mix of yeah. good and bad, to it's put gra- it plainly. Yeah, it's a yeah. grab bag. But on the other side, I'm very grateful to our friend Samantha, who requested this book. Oh, I Because get- th- I had never read it, surprisingly, even though it came out in 2002. I, this is two decades. This book is 20 years old. And yeah. I had never read it, even though it's been... A bestseller. It's been a huge success in not only America, but all around the world. I had never read it. And so thank you to Sam, who suggested that we cover it on the podcast. So this is season four, our fan request season. Yeah. Um, We actually didn't discuss this off mic, but I don't know if we want to reveal the person who have uh, recommended the pieces, because what if we don't like it and then we shit on it? It's like we're shitting on them. No, I don't. I don't think that. I think it's nice to give shoutouts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it is nice to give shoutouts, but yeah, we. But we, we loved. I loved this book. Yeah. And I've already talked to her, and she feels the same way as the movie. So I don't think that. Copy that. It's for, a for all our fans, thing. Uh, yeah. our listeners giving in requests. Please let us know if. We can reveal your name because we don't want I to guess. be embarrassing if we sure. criticize something that you love. So, yeah. yeah, but we did talk about this prior to recording and we feel very similarly about the pieces. Gotcha. So I'm comfortable All telling right. her thank you. for shitting on the movie? Hell <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> no, I'm, tell- I'm telling you that I'm comfortable telling her thank you. Gotcha. Because I really, truly enjoyed the experience of reading the book and there were some good parts about the movie and some not so good parts yeah and if you're a listener and you want to suggest a book and movie for us to cover please hit us up on instagram our dms slide into our dms for sure our (laughs) handle is film underscore is underscore lit underscore pod but please note sometimes we don't get around to covering suggestions immediately because we've got kind of a backlog of not only suggestions but our own schedule and our own hiatuses so 
Also, if we don't get around to your suggestions, that means we don't like you. So, the <laughs> lovely bones. <laughs> Let's get right into this bad oh, boy. I am so excited. I have There's a lot to talk been about. so excited to cover this piece since I started reading the book. Yeah. So it's Go ahead time. With your journey. Well, I really don't have any journey other than the fact that this book came out when we were in second grade, 2002. Can you believe that? What? I know. <laughs> I was in Miss Trujillo's class, I believe, was my second grade teacher. And my second grade teacher was Miss Chenard. Miss nice. Chenard. Shout out, Mrs. Chenard. Yeah, I have no idea where Miss Trujillo is uh-huh. <laughs> at this time, but she was teaching at Pally Elementary, and I. The thing that sticks out about her class to me is how she rolled her chalk between her hands when she wasn't writing on the board, Mm -hmm. and it would click against her ring. I assume it was a (laughs) wedding ring. I don't know. But I remember that, and I also remember the one time we had a spelling test, and one of our practice exercises was that we had to unscramble the letters, and one of our spelling words was this, and I think the automatic generator she used for our homework (laughs) scrambled it into shit. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the students noticed that and knew what it meant. I didn't know, but she asked for our homework back and she had to take a Sharpie and blot out. (laughs) But the damage was done. But the damage was done. And of course, the meaning of the word shit went around the classroom very quickly. And that's how I learned the curse word, (laughs) which I think is kind of a fun, a fun anecdote. But uh, so back to (laughs) Lovely Bones. I had heard of the book because, like I said in the beginning, it's a hugely successful novel. Obviously so successful, it was made into a movie in 2011? Nine. Nine, 2009. And I think I avoided it because I knew the subject matter. And I knew it was going to be difficult to read. But honestly, I think because of my growing interest in true crime, (laughs) which isn't very original, (laughs) everybody is very interested (laughs) in true crime at the moment, thanks Netflix, (laughs) I was intrigued when Sam suggested that we read this because I'd just never gotten around to it. And I finally read it and I really enjoyed it. I think it's not a perfect novel, but... I cried so many times while reading this. I think probably more than I normally would in any other story. Um, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm comparing it to In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, where I was just scared shitless throughout the whole plot line. Mm -hmm. Whereas... In this book, it really made me reflect on my own life and how vulnerable I've been as a young female growing up, you know, in the city. Mm -hmm. And this really made me reflect on how vulnerable I've been throughout my life and also how, you know, potentially vulnerable if we ever had a daughter would be and how that fear plays into how you parent and how parenthood is not only a very joyful experience, but can be a very traumatic experience, especially for people who are not as privileged as white people. So I think this book really took me on an emotional roller coaster. And then when I finally got around to watching the movie, it was definitely a letdown, I think, because, you know, I try not to be that the book is always better kind of person. Mm -hmm. But for this situation, I think it ended up being 
So I think Peter Jackson maybe didn't have a great grasp of what exactly the book was trying to address, and that came through, which was kind of a disappointment. Wait, so you're telling me he favored special effects over story? What? Wait, yeah, what? I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah. gosh, um, the in-between just... We'll get to well, that. Like, what was but that? He's, but yeah. he's a spectacle filmmaker, and he tried to make a nice, small little movie, and oh, I think it he just went right to, back to spectacle. Yeah, and... it's so strange to watch this and know that he's the same director of the Lord of the Rings movies. I, like, I guess I see where his passion lies, but it's unfortunate in this situation because it just really didn't work for the emotional place that this book tries to go i i don't know it just like it really is a disappointment to me no one told him that uh less is more yeah in this case well said yeah yeah and what's your yeah yeah. well i'm not normally a book is better than the movie type of guy but you know i will admit when you read a book you have this sense of loyalty and you're kind of beholden to the story the author is putting forward so when you watch a movie even if you like it, there's a sense of disappointment if everything you like about the novel is not in the movie, regardless of the movie's quality. Yeah, it's, and, a, it's an interesting relationship because sometimes if you watch the movie first, you get very emotionally connected to what the movie presents you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like tough sometimes whatever you watch or read first is yeah. what you really connect with and can taint your experience of the second thing that you right. read or, yeah. or watch. Mm-hmm. But my experience, so I remember my mom reading this book back in, I think, either when I was in second grade or third grade, like 2002, 2003, when I was really big. And I remember her explaining the story to me, and I was thinking, I'm like, man, that is so dark, but an interesting story. I've never heard someone looking down from not necessarily the heaven that we're taught about in Sunday school, but a form of heaven or or purgatory. The beyond. Yeah, I'm like, that's so interesting to me, and I was very drawn to the story. And then when this came out in 2009, we were freshmen in high school, and I Mm -hmm. hadn't read the book. I didn't read the book for this podcast, by the way, but I had been following Peter Jackson's trajectory because by that point in high school, I was really into film, and of course I'd seen The Lord of the Rings. I mean... Mm -hmm. Those came out when we were in, speaking of second grade, the first one in second grade, second and third. Mm. And I, they were a little bit scary when I was in second and third grade, but I watched both Fellowship and Two Towers in fourth grade. And then I went to see Return of the King with my brother, Matt, who was the guest on our Martian episode. We oh, went, yeah. yeah. I remember going to see that in the theaters with him. I was super nervous because it, it still was intense to me and seeing a, a movie, a big movie like that in the theaters. But... Love that. I mean, the Lord of the Rings movies, I'm going to say something obvious here, but probably the three greatest fantasy movies mm. like, ever made. Obviously, they're very long and they require a lot out of the viewer, but incredible movies. I mean, they still hold up to this day. A, a few shots here and there don't hold up in terms of VFX, but mostly it amazing experiences. Like Analogous eight, to the books, honestly, yeah. which were written in the 30s. Right, yeah. yeah. A lot of films, especially with VFX that were made in the early 2000s, don't hold up. Harry Potter, for example, a lot of those shots don't hold up. Well, yeah. Quidditch, yeah. But Peter Jackson is such a master of VFX that those movies do hold up. Now, in 2005, he made King Kong, which has its fans. Um, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> uh, I think it's 
trash. But then he came out with The Lovely Bones, and I was interested in it, but I didn't have such a desire to watch it until I went with my friend Adam Mayhew, my best friend, shout out to Adam. We went just to the theaters with some girls from high school and we were very much like two single dudes just like hang just wanting to hang out with you know girls and we're like oh let's meet up at a theater and by this point i was i've always been a person who researches the movies he wants to see and like makes a point you know buys the tickets in advance and goes and like knows what he wants to see but this was one of the few times in my life where i just aimlessly went to a theater and like just let someone else pick you know, we we let the uh, these girls pick pick the movie they That's wanted to nice. see the Lovely Bones. So yeah. I went in just completely blind, and yeah, Adam was not a fan of it. But I was very conflicted because even in two thousand nine, I recognized these VFX shots do not look good <laughs> yeah. at all. And it was so strange because the Lord of the Rings, which came out you know six years earlier, looked great. And I'm like, why is this not working? And but I still liked the idea of a of the story of someone dead who was murdered mm-hmm. looking down on Earth observing their killer as well. That was a really interesting aspect. So yeah, I loved certain aspects of the movie, hated certain others. Some just have aged really poorly. They were aged when they came out in 2009. Yeah. And ultimately I came out of that movie just really conflicted and that conflict continued until I had to watch this movie again for the podcast. And I'm like, yeah, 12 years later, I still feel exactly the same about this movie. Mm. I, I haven't changed a bit. It is just a weird, awkward movie. It's not terrible. It's you know even thrilling at times. It's yeah. just an abundance of idea ideas that feel awkwardly translated. And it's like, Peter Jackson is struggling to grapple onto any consistent, like, filmic language, if yeah. I could say that. there, It doesn't really, f- it feels like a mishmash of storytelling devices. It's very yeah. much a Frankenstein film in that Yeah, sense. Frankenstein film is a good way of saying it. I should also correct myself. The Lord of the Rings books came out in the 50s. I just wanted to interject that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said 30s, but I've hey, been... Hey, <laughs> we're, we're not professionals. Yeah. We say we're, we self, say we're experts, well, which is silly. appointed experts. I know, but I should just interject that. Well, thank you Continue. for that. Continue. No, I, I'm done. That, that's that's been, it. It's been bothering me since it came out of my mouth, and I was like, why did I say that? <laughs> yeah. But I, I was listening actively, and I appreciate your opinion. <laughs> uh, thank you. I feel validated. Sorry. Now, let's get into the analysis here. So, Laura... You read the book. What are some of the glaring yeah. differences? I have some questions for you. Sure. But I wonder, before I get to that, let's get to some glaring differences between the book and the movie. Go ahead. Yeah, I was really interested to discuss this piece because, number one, it's one of the most contemporary pieces that we've discussed on the podcast. And so there's not a lot of analysis on it online. And I don't know if that's because it's considered sort of a pulp novel or because it's just too new, but I don't know that this novel gets the literary respect that it honestly should. And I was really taken by how emotionally impacted I was by this story. And I think part of it is because Alice Siebold, who wrote it, does not flinch from the tragedy and the trauma that is inflicted on Susie Salmon, the main character. We meet Susie in the first 
line as a dead person. And she says, you know, my name is Susie Salmon, like the fish, and I was murdered on this date, 1973. And so we don't even get to know Susie as a human except through memories. And I think, honestly, the fact that she was murdered when she was, I think, 14 was so raw, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I it immediately made me think of where I was as a human at 14, you know, this little teenager. And I, you know, you hear this in popular culture, but teenagers always think that they know everything and they're basically adults. Yeah. But to see Saoirse Ronan even in this movie, who I think, by the way, was a right choice. She was incredibly cast. Yeah, we're big fans of Saoirse here. You should (laughs) listen to our Little Women episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean... Little Women, Lady Bird, this movie. She's an incredible actress, and I think she was really well chosen for this role. But when I see her as a kid, I mean, she's a kid. And when I think of pictures of me, like, I don't know if I look like Saoirse Ronan, but I definitely had the hair and the personality of just being this sort of, like, nerdy, interested in one facet of life kind of weird not necessarily part of the popular crowd in high school or middle school and i'm like gosh like this could have been me you know i think the random nature of the rape and murder is just like yeah it's just like really plays into your emotions like how how does that not play into your emotions and so you know it touches on the consequences of crime and how one person commits the crime, but you don't know the consequences of not only your victim, your direct victim, but your indirect victims, as in the parents, the siblings, the grandparents, the friends, the lovers, the people you haven't even met yet, that Susie Salmon could have made a difference in their lives. So that's one of the biggest themes. I think the other biggest thing that I came away from this book with was just that feeling of loss for humans and what a death of someone maybe expected, who's old, who's had a long life, how that affects people and the difference between that and someone who's young and who hasn't even begun to experience life outside of a family home Mm -hmm. you know so those were things that i was really looking for when i started the movie and oh man i can't even tell you how many times i cried (laughs) when i was reading this book i was just i was looking for that in the movie i really wanted it to bring that emotion out of me and it didn't i think i welled up maybe once closer to the end of the movie when Susie decided that she was going to move on from her family and kind of let go, which I think is one of the big themes of the book is letting go of the person who was, who's now become sort of a memory. But it was just, it was disappointing. I think the decision to have so many quick cuts in the movie was exhausting. Like, I, I think I wrote in my notes literally at minute 55, I was <laughs> exhausted. I was so tired of trying to keep up of what was going on and, you know, the flashbacks and Susie coming back to watch people on Earth and Susie coming back to life. It was just like, cut, 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 cut. And I don't think that was effective storytelling. It just was... It was so much. Yeah. Maybe he shot more footage than what the studio wanted and he had to cut it down a bit because his movies are 
super long. I mean, Lord of the Rings, they're all three hours. Yeah. And this is a long movie, too. So perhaps he got studio notes and they cut it down a bit. (sighs) But I really have no idea whatsoever what the film is trying to say because, okay, so it's about the afterlife of a murdered teenager running around in limbo, but her family is like dealing with the grief, but you're also watching the murderer. But I couldn't tell the reason why Susie decides to move on. Mm -hmm. So she goes into the house in limbo and then discovers all the other girls that George Harvey has killed. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, next scene, I'm out of here. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second, a couple questions. One, why were all the other girls in limbo waiting around? Could they not ascend until Susie ascends? And and why? And it's like, and why is Susie ascending now? And it's like, okay, her family is going to find her bones. So that means once they know where she is, then she can leave. But they don't find her body, her bones. And Susie's just like, I'm out. Yeah. And then it just ends. It's like, what are you saying here? That, oh, and another thing, she has this whole big monologue about how her death, while tragic, created new, quote unquote, lovely bones on earth. Mm. Like it brought her family together. And it's like, no, it really didn't at all. I mean, like her mom, her mom (laughs) left, but she came back. But it's not like I didn't see that like they were stronger because of this tragedy and yeah. there were no other thing like she came back to kiss the guy like she possessed right, Ruth yeah. and there really are no metaphorical lovely bones on earth because of your death. There's no reason, no propulsion to her ascending <laughs> to heaven and for the story ending. It's just like, okay, now the movie's ending and yeah. then we go to an indeterminate <laughs> time later and then I guess all the dead girls get revenge through the purgatory icicle. And, yeah. and then it's, I really don't know the message of the movie. I, I assume the book has poignant messages about mm-hmm. moving on, but I didn't get that at all yeah, in the movie. Yeah, those are all valid questions. So please answer so, all of them. Yeah, so first of all, I think the biggest failure of the movie is that we see Susie enjoying the in-between. Yes, and that's something... very confusing. That's something that Roger Ebert, may he rest in peace, but he pointed out in his interview, he gave this movie a scathing one and a half out of four Good stars. Good for him. Because he said, <laughs> and I don't necessarily fully agree with Roger in this point, but he was saying that same thing, that the movie comes across giving the wrong messages about heaven, that it's like okay yeah. to be there. And yeah. for me, when I was watching it, I thought it was those scenes were awkward of her, like partying and having a yeah. good time in heaven. But in the back of my mind, I still always knew that she was dead and that yeah. it still was kind of morose. I don't I don't fully agree with Roger Ebert saying that the movie is being irresponsible and showing this version of Purgatory, but I will say that is it is silly to watch that and to be like, what are we yeah. doing here? Perhaps it's not irresponsible, but it's very confusing yeah. in terms of conveying a theme. So I think what Alice Siebold is trying to say with the book is that Susie was killed in a very traumatic way. And I think it's very emotionally intelligent to observe that perhaps humans that are killed in traumatic ways don't necessarily immediately transition to a fully joyful place that people think of as heaven or humans sort of conceptualize as heaven because heaven is supposed to be this pure, lovely, joyful, happy place 
that people no longer experience pain and you get to connect with loved ones who have died before you, you know, that sort of cliche idea of heaven. I think what Alice Siebold is saying is that people who are ripped from life unfairly in traumatic ways are owed not only the closure, but the right of letting go. Yeah. And, you know, because you hear those stories and it's even cited in the book about how old people perhaps in in the hospital who are dying of something like cancer or a disease that is slowly pulling them away or actually we talked about it in little women about how the tide is slowly pulling life away from a human they sometimes see a loved one at the foot of their bed someone who's able to sort of lead them into that peaceful happy place but people who die traumatic deaths don't get that and so they need to spiritually choose to let go of the humans that they were so closely tied to in life. Sure. And I think that's a really interesting idea that oh. purgatory isn't just a place where unbaptized babies go. Yeah. You know, which is a very religious way of thinking of purgatory. It's a way of putting to rest the emotions that you didn't get to express before you died or were killed. I couldn't... That's beautiful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And where I start to get frustrated is that I don't see an arc for Susie right. in Purgatory at all. No. Uh, on one hand, I thought, okay, she's going to help her family right. discover who the killer is. But her sister... What's her sister's name? Lindsay. Her sister, Lindsay, starts to suspect Harvey yeah. out of nowhere in yeah. the movie. Yeah. The dog barks at George Harvey, and then she's just like, <gasps> and then the music's like, dum. Right. And then from that point on, she suspects George Harvey. And I'm like, there's literally no investigation there. No. And then cut to Susie in heaven, and she's mad at her killer, which is <laughs> justified, rightful. Uh, sure. rightful. But the only thing she really does to move on is talk to Holly, but... Holly kind of gives these bland messages about how, you know, you need to leave your life behind. Right. But yeah. we never see that point. We never see that turn of Susie leaving. And the only thing she does to communicate with her dad is making that rose bloom in yeah. his mind. That's really her only impact on, on her family. It's so confusing. If yeah. you've read the book, what happens when Susie arrives in the in-between is that she gets a caseworker. And the caseworker kind of explains to her, you're here right now, but when you choose that you're ready to move on, there's a higher place where you are able to come to peace with what's happened to you. Mm -hmm. And so she does actually have someone who is sort of coaching her through this traumatic time because when she runs past Ruth... I think that's a really symbolic way of saying, I can still touch people. Like, I'm so close to my life because I was ripped from it so traumatically that there's almost a thinner layer between me and the people who are still living. Yeah. And so that caseworker is there to tell you, like, you're here now and I'm, I appreciate how terribly you were ripped from Earth, but, like, you do eventually have this choice of moving on or communicating with your family and keeping those ties, which I think the eventual message is that you can't keep those ties because it almost yeah. keeps them from moving on, you yeah. know, and having a happy life, especially with her father. So the fact that there's a caseworker is a little bit more helpful 
for you to get that information. Mm -hmm. She does have that friend Holly, but she's not in the book murdered by George Harvey. She's just another girl who died too young. And so it's kind of a companion to her who's sort of going through the same things. Gotcha. Right? Like she, it's, it, she's a friend, but in no point is Susie having fun. Yeah. Like the in-between is a time for her to emotionally process the fact that she's been raped and murdered. And that is not something that you enjoy. Like she's fully aware of, yeah. of what happened to her. And that's it's kind of a slap in the face to the audience in the movie, if you've read the book, it's, I, I don't understand there, those scenes where she's dancing around and she sees, you know, Tibet and the Colorado mountains. She sees that she has that potential in the in-between, but it's her choice that she ne needs to be, she needs to come to terms with the fact that she'll just never be alive again. Yeah. And those are the things that she can hope for and like become where she can experience those things, but those aren't for her right now. Like, that, she has to choose to move on. Right. It's just confusing. It's so confusing in the movie. Uh, I don't understand Another that confusing element is that her home base, her, the big motif in the in-between is the gazebo, where she's yeah. supposed to meet Ray Singh, the 18-year-old who looks 25, who's interested in a 14-year-old. <laughs> but... I don't know why that was the main motif in the movie because that's just her connection to her potential boyfriend, to Ray. Yeah. So she always ends up at the gazebo and then later on in the movie when her dad gets beaten up in the cornfield, yeah, that the, is... the gazebo breaks. And I'm like, what connection does the gazebo in the in-between have to her father? Yeah. And why is... Why is that breaking? Like, what does that symbolize? Like, I'm sure you're sad about your dad getting beaten up, but it doesn't symbolically yeah. make sense to break the gazebo. I totally agree. Yeah. It, yeah. It, there, there, it's just a loose amount of... It's just Peter Jackson, he has all the money in the world. I mean, the Lord of the Rings movie is so successful. He he runs a VFX company. He, he just wanted to play with his toys and like, look, <laughs> look what I can do. I can I can put ships in bottles, but make them supersized and have them crash into the beach. And like, wouldn't that be so cool? I'm like, it is cool, but it serves no narrative function. Oh, oh her dad is mad on Earth and it's crashing these bottles, but it's just so loose. Yeah. to what's going on in Susie's uh, arc. Yeah. And for some reason, I remembered the movie coming to an end with her, there being a conclusion with her like family finding out that George was the killer and then running him out of town. But mm -hmm. they don't even do that. Like yeah. he leaves and he d and George dies Very years later. Very unsatisfying ending, yeah. Ironically, George is the only one who has like a real end point that you can understand because it's like, okay, he died. But Susie just decides to ascend to heaven because it's the end of the movie. So yeah. that she does that. And her family comes together because that's just what they did. They didn't find her bones, which is like the only sense of closure that they could have got. But yeah. they, you know, so there's just no real end to any of it. Yeah. It's real, it's real frustrating. It is. And I think the reason that the movie is so frustrating is because of Alice Siebold's beautiful choice in the book that Susie is ready to let go when she sees that her family is 
creating those quote-unquote lovely bones in her absence. And that comes because her sister Lindsay becomes engaged to Sam, which is honestly only touched on in the movie because of images of her being pregnant and her having a boyfriend. That's way more fleshed out in the book. So she becomes engaged. She has this beautiful relationship with her boyfriend. Buckley is growing up and becoming his own person. Her mother comes back from California. Oh, it's Buckley? I thought his name was Bugley. Like B-U-G. Oh, no, Buckley. (laughs) Oh, His name is Buckley. (laughs) I thought they were saying Bugley. Oh. (laughs) No, that's funny. No, no, no. Her, Her younger brother, Buckley, is becoming a teenager, a young boy, and they acknowledge her absence is always going to be there, but it's not going to be the defining identity in their family. That's when she's able to let go and she doesn't bring the other girls or women that are... That, I agree, that was completely misunderstood. Yeah, the the movie implies that these other girls couldn't ascend until Susie does. I remember... I mean, I'll be honest, I was a little tipsy while I was watching this, hey, but I remember <laughs> speaking out loud in our apartment saying, what is going on with her reuniting with all the girls who have been murdered, which is devastating in the book. She does talk about how George Harvey is a, an experienced killer of young girls and young women and, and older women. And... But she doesn't really meet them so much as she's guided by them who have clearly also gone through their own traumatic emotional arc in that in-between, you know? So she has, like, multiple people showing her, like, yes, we've all been ripped from life too early, but, you know, that happened, and we're sorry it happened, but you you have to let go, and you have to move on, and you have to let your living family move on as well for them to be humans, you know, fully formed, emotionally mature humans. So it's just, it doesn't make sense that she's the shepherd, right? Yeah. She, you know, it's oh, it's so confusing. And like you mentioned the shipbuilding and oh my gosh, we're going to have to talk about how poorly cast Marky Mark oh, okay. <laughs> is We'll get in to this my film. boy Marky Mark. But it's just so sad because the shipbuilding in the bottles in the book is about her close relationship with her father. And they used to build those ships together and the big climax of building those ships was pulling the little cord so that they would in what's it's not inflate but they would pop up because you build all of it in a small little packet outside of the bottle and then you insert it into the bottle and then you pull this one little cord and they inflate or you they know would they erect don't erect. laugh don't laugh <laughs> no that's that's exactly the word that's I was the looking term for. don't yeah, laugh it's exactly. not funny so they pulled this little cord and they erect in the bottle (laughs) and then they burn the little piece of thread that they pulled to erect the boat and (laughs) and that is something that nobody else in Susie's family was interested in so the fact that that was integral to her and her father's relationship was important and it was almost sacred because that was a special time when they had 
to pull that cord. And so in the movie, it's like she's disinterested in this practice. And she's like, you're so weird for wanting to build these little ships and these bottles. And he's like, he, oh my gosh, the script in this movie. I can't even tell you how many times I was like, Susie, stop. <laughs> yeah. You're going to love it, Susie. Susie, what? When you erect the ship, it's this, this, oh my gosh. I can't even quote it because it was so poorly written. Okay. Here, here's what you do. I'm not a screenwriter, but here's how you write this arc. Okay. So Susie and her dad have this connection where they build ships, right? Right. And in the opening scene, they do it, and it's this big emotional moment. Mm -hmm. And then she gets killed, and he tries to make these ships again and do it, but it's just not the same. He's not there, and he breaks down and crushes all the ships. And building ships in the bottles was something that he would never do with his wife. His wife would, like, scoff at him and be like, why are you going to waste so much time and money in these bottles? Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the movie, to symbolically show that they're now together and they've created lovely bones, is that he's now building a ship and then his wife comes down to erect the final ship, showing symbolically and literally that they're working together to do something that that their daughter did. Bam. But see, that's an example of an A to B. Showing, not telling. Yeah. Showing, not telling. Exactly. There's a lot of telling in this movie. There's, oh Like, for example, when Ruth, which, to be honest, this might sound controversial to fans of the book, I think she should have just been cut out of the movie. Like, completely. Maybe even Ray Singh, too. They don't really have any... I have an interesting take on Ray Singh's storyline, but continue. But Ruth, it's so awkwardly handled. Totally should have been cut. You could have saved about 10 minutes. She has this line to Ray of saying, like, maybe she's not gone. Maybe she's here. And her performance isn't good. The writing isn't good. It's an awkward scene. It's telling the audience information that we already know. We already know that she's not gone in a metaphorical sense. So let me just quote another moment when the same message is shoved down our throats. Lindsay walks in on her father in his study or his craft room and she goes, Dad, she's dead, isn't she? (laughs) (laughs) Talking about Susie. And it's like, yeah, we're halfway through the movie. Like, yes, she's fucking dead. Like, I don't mean to make light, I'm sorry, of Susie's death, but obviously the yeah. the audience has already been shown that she's in the in-between. She was murdered. And like, that yeah. kind of writing is just taking the audience and saying, you're stupid, so let me spell it out for you. Right. And I think the PG-13 rating on this movie, it sanitized some aspects. So I've I've read that in the movie, George Harvey dismembers Susie and that a dog finds her elbow and brings it back. So that's how the family knows that she has been killed. Yeah. In a PG-13 movie, you can't really show dismemberments. I don't think you can even show limbs or dismembered limbs like a dog in its mouth but the thing is they never find her body at all and the movie is teasing you at the end with george pushing the safe into the trash hole he shows the there's a trash bag that he puts into the safe but right you never see her it's teasing that moment of them finding out where the body is yeah but that never happens and it's like why why was the music swelling like why was there tension when George is pushing the safe down the hole if it, the whole scene is just, oh, he pushes it down the hole. Like, yeah. why, why would you lead us on like that to say, oh, you should be, 
you should be on the edge of your seat because maybe they find the bones. They don't. It's a it's an unnecessary subversion of your expectations. Now, since the movie is PG-13 too, you can't show a lot of blood. So that first scene when Susie's in purgatory and she doesn't realize it yet and she sees George Harvey in the bathtub, mm -hmm. there's mud everywhere. Mm -hmm. And when you watch it, I was like, wait, is that blood or is that mud and if it's mud why is he all muddy like yeah. was there where did the mud come from yeah because the hole that he digs is not muddy it's in the, it is i'm sorry but if you've never lived in an area that freezes over during the winter there's not mud yeah. there's crunchy earth right like how would he have gotten muddy in the yeah. middle of winter it's ice yes it's permafrost like i'm sorry but like i lived in north dakota for four years and mud doesn't really happen unless it sleets or it snows and that's not shown sure i have another huge like issue yeah. with that whole fucking thing i'm sorry the hole is in the middle of a cornfield that is not covered by anything and he's able to lure her and nobody sees her going to the hole is that different in the book i mean it's kind of in the middle of some trees but that's actually also another like issue i have with the book oh, okay, is that it's gotcha. like totally unbelievable that he right. was able to lure her into a fucking hole oh. in the middle of a cornfield where literally anybody could have seen her get it like that's that's actually an issue i have with yeah. like the book and the movie and, but, and also in the movie sorry. Susie is chasing the note in the cornfield and then stanley tucci just pops out of yeah, nowhere yeah he's like you can't see him until he's suddenly like, like right next to and her it's like he literally wasn't in the last shot and he yeah. just appears yeah there's like a full yeah. <laughs> like, aerial shot of the cornfield where he is nowhere in sight. And, like, Ruth was, like, ten feet ahead of her. How yeah. did she not how see How does she, like, go through the cornfield and then suddenly she's gone? And yeah. like, hmm, maybe I should check on Susie. I mean, she might not... She didn't know Susie at that point, but still. But, like, there's someone else in the cornfield yeah. you're aware of. And, and, like I said, this happens in the middle of winter. You're crunching corn beneath your boots. You can hear it. Other people would have noticed here. So I'm sorry, you're talking about the mud, but... Yeah, but the second time you watch it, you go, okay, that's supposed to be blood, but it straight up is just not red. Yeah. You know, it's supposed yeah. to be red. And it's just red enough to imply that it's blood, but it's also brown enough to imply that it's either, well, it's either poop or mud. <laughs> it's yeah. one or the other. So <laughs> the, I have the passage in front of me that shows in the book, it goes into detail of her rape and, yeah. and murder. Yeah. You can't show that in a PG-13 movie. I actually think it was tastefully done. How, I do too. And it's I a agree. good twist. I will say that of her escaping yeah. and then slowly realizing that she didn't escape. I completely agree. I thought that was tastefully done. I knew it was PG-13 going in. And so there were a couple of moments in the book that I knew would have to be maybe sanitized isn't the word, but definitely de-escalated. Yeah. And I thought that the rape scene was very tastefully done where she, it looked like she might have gotten out. Yeah. But then you see later that she was actually already sort of in spirit mode yeah. as she ran past Ruth. And the other one is that she actually comes back and has sex with Ray because the book takes place over eight years. And so by the time she sort of quote unquote falls into Ruth's body, he's in college and he's sort of of age okay. and she's <laughs> aged past 14 in, I don't know, spiritual mode. It, it's a little strange because yeah. she is sort of 14 still, right. but they had, they do kiss and they are sort of a couple in the book already. 
So in the movie, that's not set up at all. Yeah. In and the, so, yeah. In the movie, it's like, why is an 18-year-old interested in a 14-year-old who looks 12? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, see, and that's, I think, the issue with condensing yeah. so much. Because, we, honestly, one of the things that really got me in the book is that she's in middle school when she's murdered. Oh. And so, it's, this is so sad to talk about because... She looks at the high school and she can't wait to get there. It's Fairfax High and she is so excited to be a high school student because she thinks she has a blank canvas to start over. You know, she's nerdy. She's not popular. She's been teased. And what middle schooler can't relate to that about wanting a clean slate in high school and getting to ninth grade and thinking that everything's going to be different and maybe like an upperclassman might have a crush on you or you might meet some new people that create your new clan. And Susie Salmon in the book never gets there. And I think that's one of the most interesting insights that Siebold has because that's such a point of potential for children to get to high school. And that's something that Susie never attains. And that is just crushing, I think, to someone, again, like me, who's like, you know, a white girl, (laughs) But I had those same feelings where I like I wanted to get to high school because I thought that was like that was the older crowd and those were the cool kids and maybe I could have something more than the bullied, <laughs> self-conscious little nerd that I thought I was. And so I think in the movie they accelerated her to be in high school so that racing could be sort of that like older intrigue yeah. who is interested in her. But then eventually they don't get to the kiss because I think after the kiss, the logical next step was the sexual component. And I think as a PG-13 movie, they just didn't want to go there. And that's why they decided not to let her even get to the kiss because that would be the next logical step of them just being Well, she crushes. gets to the kiss. Well, but she doesn't. So the kiss is the next step after being crushes. Right, but, okay. you know, they don't kiss in the book before she dies oh, because they don't want to take it to the sexual component. Because I think that was yeah, maybe like a bit of a line that the book walked. Yeah. Like she was technically still 14 when she died, but she had aged eight years in the spiritual in between. So it was yeah. like it was okay when she became Ruth and had sex with Ray. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a it's a line, yeah, but I think I it was it. tasteful. Yeah. Like they they did have a spiritual connection connection and i think ray still thought about her and cared for her throughout the years he was in medical school is you know where he goes so yeah the yeah the two points in the movie i remember when i saw this back in ninth grade and the audience it was a packed audience mm. mind you it was on remember opening that? night Theaters? yeah oh, <laughs> i i would do anything i would see suicide squad in, with a packed crowd <laughs> that's how much i miss theaters you know i saw suicide squad voluntarily at a drive-in <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I yeah. fell asleep. <laughs> That's let's get off Suicide Squad. Uh, I don't know why I brought it up, but the two we were points remembering pre-COVID times. <laughs> the two points of unintentional laughter, which you never want Mm-mm. as a filmmaker, yeah, was when no. they're about to ascend to heaven, and Holly goes, "What are you waiting for? You're free. It's heaven." <laughs> And the whole audience exploded with laughter. But then to Yikes. get to get back to Ray Singh, the second point was when 
she possessed Ruth's body out of nowhere. Like, there's no there's no lead up to that. It just yeah. happens. Yeah, very, like, very confusing. Peter Jackson should have foreshadowed these powers that Susie apparently has. Mm-hmm. He, it, it just happens. Well, even an image of her, like, falling into the body yeah. would have been helpful because in the book... It's a little unclear as well, but Ruth is hit by George Harvey's car, coincidentally, which is an issue I have because it's quite a coincidence that he's back in the area after like a few years. He kind of comes back because he can't settle the fact that Lindsay broke into his house and he's going to try to kill Lindsay sort of a thing. So he's driving past the farm where Susie's body is and racing and Ruth are there also sort of coincidentally and he kind of hits her with his car and then there's that feeling that... Ruth oh. is possessed a little bit and she sort of switches place with Susie. She goes to heaven and is doing this like beat poetry performance. Okay, that's <laughs> People wild. who are dead. I, that's... That's, that's another issue I have with the book that I, I didn't quite yeah. appreciate as much. But even just an image of Susie's spirit falling into the body of Ruth would have been a little bit more helpful because you don't understand until Ray is like, what? Susan? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. so the point the second point where the audience burst in laughter was oh, no. she possesses That's Ruth. That's terrible. And <laughs> and then <laughs> it cuts from Ray's face back to Ruth and it's now Sir Sharonin. Yeah. And then someone in the audience like in the back goes, "Give me a break." <laughs> oh, no. And the whole audience was just like roaring from that. It's that's, it's real oh, awkward. But that's so terrible because this book is so de- it's so yeah, it's dark and and deep. You don't want that. But you mentioned <laughs> let's get to some of oh the tone shift. I'm sorry well, that just brings up the tonal shift. Yeah. So this movie is just whiplash. Uh, but I wanted to get to some. Let's get to complimenting the movie. You met sure. you had mentioned Lindsay breaking into oh that's George's actually George's house. Oh, yeah, that's a huge issue I have with the book actually. Oh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I I don't. Uh, this is just the opposite. In the movie, I think it's by far and away the best sequence. So tense, so yes. well shot. Okay. Uh, yes. There's a real sense of danger. Stanley yes. Tucci yes. comes so close to. Ca- yes. I mean, it's an expertly done sequence. Yes. I wish there's more sequences like that in the movie. So that that point in the movie, I agree. That was so full of tension. Oh my gosh, you're right. The shots, the cuts, the score, the acting. Well done. By the way, the woman who plays her sister Lindsay is from New Zealand, which is kind of fun. Right, yeah. Her accent comes out a couple times, but... Yeah, yeah, but no, but she's she's really great. Yeah. Yeah, overall. But that actually was a point in the book that I didn't think was believable because her and her dad sort of in an unspeaking way, conspire for Lindsay to break into that house. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? The father of a murdered girl would not encourage his only other daughter to break into the person that he suspects murdered his daughter. Yeah. Like, that was unbelievable to me. That was absolutely unbelievable. And in the book, it's actually not Lindsay who starts to suspect Harvey, which you, I th- I totally agree, was not believable in the movie. It's actually Susie's father, Jack, who starts to observe Harvey's kind of strange behavior and he goes over there and starts to spend time with him just to get to know him because he starts to suspect like maybe someone in the neighborhood was aware of the geography of that cornfield 
mm-hmm. and he he has this feeling and suddenly he goes do you know what happened to Susie he says her name to Harvey and Harvey reacts in a very suspicious way and that's when he comes to the realization that like oh shit Harvey knows something and he says that he goes you know something and Harvey's like uh no I don't and he's like it's time for you to leave it's, I don't That's, know why that could have been in the movie because instead what yeah. they choose to do is just to have them figure it out. They, yeah, there's no <laughs> catalyst. Yeah. And the catalyst in the book is that Harvey is this everyman neighbor who no one would suspect. And he <laughs> he crafts, he very carefully crafts that character for himself because he's done it before. And this is not the first neighborhood that he's been a predator in. And I think that's really important. And so that I think is the turning point and something that people in contemporary times have become very suspicious of is that everyday neighbor. We talked about that in Gone Girl and in, oh my gosh, I mean, it comes up in, we talked about the sort of renaissance of the suburbia horror trope, which is, you know, it's very compelling because it's like everybody who you live around could be a suspect. Everyone who lives in suburbia could be hiding something very dark in their basement. And that I don't think was a very common idea in the 1970s, which I think is so compelling about the book. But Susie's father identifies something is not quite right with Harvey. And that's the catalyst is he says, you know something about what happened to my daughter. Catalyst. That's a perp- That's the word I've been looking for this whole podcast. There's no catalysts to... Any actions? Any, anything. <laughs> yeah. The, so Stanley Tucci, amazing performance. He, he Stanley Tucci yes. kills it in everything he's in. Well he was, cast. He was yeah. nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this role, even though I, I don't like the movie he totally deserved that nomination. I agree. However, even though this is back in the 70s when people weren't suspecting their neighbors like that, the way George Harvey looks, yeah. he looks like the most obvious pedophile rapist murderer yes. ever. He yes. This, well, I have a mustache, but like his, he is like fully blonde and like short and stout. And the little glasses mustache. and the glasses, The glasses, yeah. the hair that's, it's not... He's like slightly balding, but not really. And that was a wig that St- Stanley Tucci is actually bald in real life, but it was a wig and he wore these blue contact lenses that would make his eyes blue and he couldn't look more like a murderer. And it's like, oh yeah, that, that obviously he'd be the one, he'd be the first suspect. <laughs> right. I think it's, it's interesting when we talk about how the script tells and not shows yeah. But I think they pumped the accelerator on the showing but not telling aspect of his character development. Yeah. <laughs> or his, yeah. I, I think that they just pushed that a little too far. Like, why not make him someone who blended into the community a little bit more? Yeah, exactly. Because he was, he, yeah. Anyway. Regardless of that, though, he truly disappears into the role. Bone-chilling yeah. performance. A lovely bone-chilling honestly. Yeah, I was going to say, in spite of the poorly written script, he does an incredible job of bringing out a very creepy character and someone who knew how to leverage the normalizing of young women being polite. Yeah. Because remember when he lures Susie into the hole and he offers her a Coke and he says, be polite. You have to be polite. Yeah. I built this for you and your friends. Just be polite. And he gets increasingly creepy, but he uses that as leverage to keep her down there. 
And I think that his acting was unexpected for the roles that he normally takes, but yeah. really well handled. Yeah, it, it casting against type. Yes, totally. Yeah. yeah. It, he and man, Tucci, he, he kills it in every role he's in. The Hunger Games, Easy A, he, he's great. Easy A's, yeah. He can he's, do it all. Love, yeah. love the Tooch. But okay, we said <laughs> we said a, a couple good things about the movie. Now we got to get to the final thing we want to talk about. Our boy, Good Vibrations, Marky Mark. Now listen. Yikes. <laughs> no, Yikes. I, I don't hate Marky Mark. I think given the right role and the right director, he's great. The Departed. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I he, don't know if I've seen anything else of his, to be honest. Have I seen? Really? Do you think I've seen anything else of uh, him? Well, have you seen Ted? No. He's funny in the other guys? No. No. Oh. I don't he's, think I've seen him in anything else. Oh, he, he's funny in those... He's great in We Own the Night, which came out the same year as this one. That was like a gritty cop drama directed either. by James Gray, who directed Ad Astra, which we talked about oh, last season. Like that. Given the right... And he's even good in a lot of those schlocky action movies, if used correctly. He, he's not a bad actor. In this movie, boy, it's just... It's, it's so it's, bad. <laughs> it's one of the biggest cases of miscasting, probably next to Russell Crowe and, and Les Mis. Ooh, that's a terrible casting right yeah. but it is so yeah. glaringly obvious that yeah. he doesn't have the range for this character again he, he can kill it given the right role he doesn't have the nuance i completely there, agree there's a scene where as soon as they find out that Susie has been killed well, him yeah. and, and rachel vice are, are who also is a little yeah, she's not underperforming yeah, she's not, not great. great in this movie she, they're crying in bed she's like I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna do everything I can. Please. And, she, and then she's Rachel like Vice is sobbing. like Rachel Vice is like with CGI tears. She's not even like actually no, crying. She's it's... just like, how are you? How, what are you gonna do? She's just like, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call every cop in this town, and I'm gonna find them, and, and I'm gonna get them. <laughs> and yeah. that montage of him researching potential killers, like, yeah. it's gotta be this guy's a custodian, and he he just has that same timber, that same tone, and he can, he just doesn't. <laughs> pull off the scene where he finally realizes that George Harvey is the killer and he's just like what'd you do to my daughter what'd you do to her yeah. and the like, camera like cuts away as if embarrassed that he's <laughs> oh, no. Mark Wahlberg is yelling he just can't do it uh, and yeah. oh. Mark Wahlberg this is a fun fact. He was a last-minute replacement. Mark this Wahlberg, is so interesting to me. <laughs> he, he came in to the role a day one day before production I can't even slated that. Grant. Why? Because, <laughs> well, the first choice for the dad role was Hugh Jackman. But Hugh Jackman dropped out because of scheduling conflicts. Now, Hugh Jackman would have been incredible in this role. I mean, if you've seen the movie Prisoners, Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. Oh my gosh, very, go watch that movie. Yeah. Analogous almost to yeah. this. Deals with missing children. You're right, yeah. yeah. He should have gotten nominated for that role. Right. Yeah. But he, yeah, <laughs> in a hole. <laughs> Literally in a hole, yeah. <laughs> so he dropped out. A, a huge shame. But another capable actor, Ryan Gosling. I love Ryan Gosling. Uh, adore. Let's just go to adore Ryan Gosling. Yes. Yeah. Um, and open that door. It sounded like you said uh, a door. Uh, oh, sorry. I, I adore him as yes, an actor. Uh, me too. I adore him He's as well. He's wonderful. 
So there are different... I, can't, I literally, I'm sorry, I can't even handle this because I'm so upset. When Danny told me this, I was still reading the book and I got so emotionally invested in him playing the father that I, yeah. I like fully rejected the movie there, <laughs> as a result. There are differing accounts of what exactly happened. Peter Jackson has a different story that's saying like Ryan Gosling felt he couldn't handle the role because he was too young, so he dropped out. And Ryan Gosling repeatedly has made it clear that he was fired, that he did not leave on his own accord. Yeah, because he, he said that there's creative differences between him and Peter Jackson, saying that he thought the role of the father should have been, he should have been like physically pudgy, fat. Mm -hmm. Okay, which honestly is backed up by the book because right. he's defined as hardy. You're a hearty right. person, but he loses weight by the end of the novel because he's so emotionally gutted by his daughter's rape and murder. Right. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it. I mean, and it also takes place in Pittsburgh, which is kind of a, you know, Midwestern-ish town with, where heftiness is kind of natural. Right. It's normal. So apparently, Peter Jackson or the producers never explicitly told Ryan Gosling to gain weight. Mm -hmm. They never told him to do that. But Ryan Gosling being the creative person that he is, he decided for that character to gain weight. Now, he admits he went overboard. He gained hmm. around 30 pounds of fat, like not muscle, yeah. pure fat. What he would do, he would melt ice cream. <laughs> he would melt Haagen-Dazs and for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, <laughs> drink melted ice cream. Can you even handle it? So and, and there are pictures of Ryan Gosling online. You just Google fat Ryan Gosling and or, or Ryan Gosling, the lovely bones. And he is, he is like husky. He is He's huge. He's like a big guy. Yeah. I, he, I've never seen Ryan Gosling. Like his neck is thick. Like he is, he is fat. And the story as Ryan Gosling told it is he comes out on set and says to Peter Jackson, like, look at me. And Peter Jackson goes, wow. And Ryan Gosling goes, like, isn't it great? Like, look at, look at me. Look and what then, I did, And then Dad. Peter Jackson goes, no, like, it's not great. And he told him to, like, hit the treadmill. And from there, tensions arose because clearly they had two different visions of this character. Mm -hmm. And then Ryan Gosling said, he goes, then I was fat and unemployed. And he, again... Ryan Gosling has made it clear that he was fired. Peter Jackson has said that Ryan Gosling left voluntarily. Uh, it's a he said, he said situation, but... It's tough to say. I mean, the timeline of Marky Mark getting hired a day before filming aligns with the fact that yeah. something happened. That something happened. If there was a voluntary exit, you think that there wouldn't be a last minute a day replacement. And it's, I mean... What a... Oh, yeah. And, and again, Sorry. Mark Wahlberg, great actor given the right role. This was the wrong role. I don't know how they couldn't get anyone else. I mean, this is Peter Jackson. He, yeah. he directed... He won 11 Oscars for The Return of the King. I mean, like, you can't get anyone else <laughs> for this role. Right. Uh, you can't delay shooting a few more weeks yeah. just to find the right person. Right. I mean... You have this huge budget... Paramount. Sir Sharonin. Yeah, Param wonderful decision. Paramount gave you so much money. And fun fact about the release of this movie: so Paramount delayed the awards campaign for Shutter Island because hmm. they put all their money into this. And, Shut up! And they pu they pushed Shutter. I didn't know that. They pushed Shutter Island's release until January of 2010. It was <gasps> supposed to come out in 2009, which we talked about in the yeah. Shutter Island episode, episode number two of this podcast, by the way. 
And yeah, uh, they put all their money into this awards campaign. Un okay, I'm sorry. That it is was, unbelievable. Yeah. Because Shutter Island is one of my favorite movies. Right. And this doesn't even hold a candle. Yeah, Shutter Island is up there for me too. It's in my top 100. Shut up. Uh, yep. Same. Uh, this it's in movie, my top 100. The, the one and only nomination, it was for Stanley Tucci. He didn't win. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. I so, mean, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, I That's still so I still stand Mark Wahlberg, but not in this role. It's he's terrible. All right, any other last thoughts? We got to close this it's puppy just, up. It's just upsetting. This movie hasn't been made in the close enough future to have a remake. I feel, but perhaps with the right director, yeah, this oh. could be really well adapted. Completely agree. Because I think there are a lot of really dark themes that people are really connecting with. I feel like possibly even completely turning away from like a white narrative and making this with a different Oh, interesting. Yeah. kind of family. Yeah, for sure. would be very interesting. I also was I guess not to shit on this movie anymore, but I was a little disappointed about how Peter Jackson didn't pick up on the theme of being a mother and how emotionally empty that can make women and how, I think especially in the past, where it was kind of default to make women the primary care provider and how that could affect the relationship between women and their children. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of touched on when Abigail who's Susie's mom, runs away to California for seven years. She actually abandons Whoa. her family and because she, she just can't handle the pain. Yeah. And, and it's explained that it's because Abigail wasn't expecting Susie. And so there's that complication of, I didn't even want my first child. What happens when they're killed? Yeah. You know, I think that's really emotionally compelling. And... They really only touched on that when she's shown in California for one scene, yeah. sending postcards back home, and then she comes back, and, you know, you talked about the lack of catalyst for anything. She is compelled to come home because Jack has a heart attack. In the and, book. In the book. And she comes back because she feels like she wants to see her husband, not necessarily that she wants to take care of her remaining children. And I think that was a really interesting discussion in the book that wasn't handled in the movie so either like abandon the whole storyline that she leaves or explore it yeah. in depth like i don't know why they decided to just show that one scene it felt very half -assed. hollow and half-assed i also i guess and on a high note i really enjoyed susan sarandon in yeah. the role the idea of playing the hollies song behind her cleaning up the house and coming back and being t super drunk. And it was a nice reprieve from yeah, the dark material. It was a montage, which honestly is fine. Like sometimes you need a break like that in a dark movie or in a dark book like this. And that's kind of the role that she takes on in the book as well. I thought that was actually really well handled because she does fill that role of comedic relief almost. Like she's such a realist that she's the only person that's able to say, hey, Susie's gone. Yeah. You know, she moves in with a family and she's like, hey, hey, everyone. Look like, I look at me. Hey, I know Susie's gone and it's really sad and it's tragic, but like we're living and we have to move on. Like she's the only person who's able to speak for Susie in the living world and say like, we can't undo this. I'm sorry, but we have to move on. And I really enjoyed her character. So I think Susan Sarandon was really well cast. Yeah. Like, well done for her. I think she could have 
I don't know if she would have deserved a supporting Academy Award nomination, but she did a great job. So yeah, if there were guest actor nominations yeah. like they do for TV. Like cameo. Yeah. Yeah. Like a cam. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh my gosh. I mean, I love her in Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think she's a great actress. So I think that was really well thought out. But other than that, I honestly like wouldn't ever suggest anybody who's read the book to go watch this movie, I would say it's probably a two out of four because there was there was so much that didn't work, but there were elements that did. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I originally had it at two out of four stars, uh, the movie that is. But the more I talked about it, I realized, man, I really don't like it. Even though <laughs> yeah. Stanley Tucci's That's great, fair. Susan yeah. Sarandon's great, a couple scenes are great. Hey, it's oh, it, when he's looking through the dollhouse. When Len comes over to yeah. investigate him, hey, that was a stroke of genius. Yeah. Well done, Peter Jackson. Yeah. But yeah, yeah there was uh, a lot not but to like. <laughs> everything else, not great. Not great, Bob. So yeah. it's one and a half out of me for the movie. I understand uh, that. Pretty, pretty rough. What would you rate the book? I would say three out of four. There are a lot of sentence fragments, which I think Alice Siebold tried to use stylistically, uh-huh. but I don't think it worked. And I think that there were some coincidental yeah. pieces of the storyline I didn't appreciate. If you listen to this podcast, you know we hate coincidences. Yeah, they're yeah. just uh, s- there was some stuff that felt a little eh, to me. That's a little stretched. But three out of four, so but solid. Honestly, I mean, I don't think I've cried while reading a book as much as I have <laughs> throughout this book. It was it was really tough, honestly, and it really made me reflect on the random nature of some serial killers, you Mm -hmm. know, and how easily Susie Salmon could have been me. Like, Susie Salmon says, my name is Susie Salmon, salmon like the fish. That very easily could have been, my name is Laura Sealing, sealing like the top of your house. Yeah, like, but spelled with an S. Right, an I-E instead of E-I. I think that (laughs) Alice Siebold had a, a lot of really good ideas, and I think in a time where we're very open to reassessing murders and rapes and sexual harassment and sexual violence prior to 2010 and the Me Too movement, like, this is a really great piece, and I think it's something that people should be aware of. So I would highly suggest the book. Amen. Great. Fantastic episode. Join us next week when we cover, ooh, books that we want to be made into movies. Can't wait for this. This is going to be a special episode. Yeah. I, I, I can't wait for it either. I have some, I have some juicy picks. Some Me good too. Picks, yeah. I can't wait. All right. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review. Subscribe if you want to. No pressure, um, <laughs> but we highly encourage it. All right. And we'll see you on the next one. Bye.